Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are the source of life. It is a mercy and a gift from you that we get to gather and sing to you and to each other as a reminder that our life comes from you. You are active and involved in every area of our lives, whether we are aware of it or acknowledge it or not. Open our eyes more and more to your activity and ground us in your wisdom. Lord, in our creation, you bestowed honor on us. You gave us the honor of bearing your image, but we have fallen in the same traps as has been common to all humans. We trade your honor for a false honor. We trade honor based on your unchanging goodness for worthless honor that we manufacture. Whether we are new to following you or mature in our faith, we confess our daily need for your forgiveness, for trading your honor for these worthless things. Bring our sin and our brokenness to our minds even now as we pause to confess to you. When we repent of these things and turn to you, you are faithful to forgive. Your grace is more than enough for us. Lord, as we are reminded of our deep need for you, we pray that you would bring us opportunities to share that with people who do not know you. Through your Holy Spirit, bring people with soft hearts into our spheres of influence. Soften the hearts of the people who are close to us. Then use our words and our lives to preach your kingdom to them. We want to be part of your work of establishing your kingdom that will fill the whole earth. We need you, God, and we thank you for your faithfulness to be near to us in our need. Thank you for your word and for its revelation of your wisdom and your mission of restoring all things to you. Thank you for your church and for its role of making disciples and keeping us close to you through our love for one another. Help us now as we open our hearts to your word. Count us among those who have eyes that see and ears that hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You guys can have a seat, grab your Bibles and notebooks, and open up to Daniel 2. I hope you guys are ready to go through a lot of Scripture. You ready to study the Word today? Yeah, you guys got an extra couple hours of sleep from the first service, so you should be raring to go, right? All right. Daniel 2. Have you ever woken up from a really crazy dream in a panic? Dreams have a powerful impact on us, don't they? They often seem so real that it's difficult to know if you're actually awake or asleep when you come out of the dream. Other times, we realize that dreams are often a combination of sensory input we've gathered throughout the day, mixed with our emotional toll that we feel because of those things that we've gone through and experienced. But even in those moments where we realize rationally that this is probably just my brain working things out and filing away memories, even then, sometimes it bothers us because we get a frightening view into our own, our own subconscious. And this is why we're uh, called by Scripture to check the spirits and, and make sure that they're of the Lord. It's why it's important to critically think through whether dreams are anything more than just a dream or not. But for much of human history, dreams were thought to have a divine origin, and Scripture gives clear credence to that possibility that it happened then, it could still happen now. And so we must be extremely careful, as we'll see later in one of the prophets, to seek additional evidence that our visions or our dreams are actually of the Lord before we promote them as such. 
But in our story today, we are assured that Nebuchadnezzar has been given a dream from God because not only does he receive it and possibly receive it over multiple nights, but he also has Daniel, a man who's been, in a sense, sent by God to be able to give him the interpretation. Now, we see the relatively new king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. You can call him Nebi for short, and especially as you're taking notes. It takes a while to write out Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? So just write out Nebi. We see Nebi awakes from a dream that has deeply troubled him because it seems to have implications about his reign and the kingdom that he leads. After all, isn't it part of us and our, our human condition that we want to know what happens? We want to know what happens to our leaders, to our country, to our favorite soccer team, our favorite basketball team, right? That's why the Inquirer exists in the grocery store. Did you guys notice, have you seen any of the articles about all the people who are uh, fortune tellers, their business is going crazy the last year because people want to know when things are going to change. The funniest part about the story usually is that they have no idea and they kind of, you know, fumble their way, way through it. But we always want to know. We want to know what the future holds. But what we'll see here, of, uh, see and hear of the dream and have Daniel interpret it is a, a view of history that moves beyond one country, one nation, one empire, one king. And if we take the truth of what Daniel shares with the king to heart, I think it will give us great hope and courage and clarity. So what we'll see today as we're going through Daniel chapter 2 is that the sovereignty of God brings clarity amidst the chaos. The sovereignty of God brings clarity amidst the chaos. And I know that this is a, a, a repeat that I've done multiple times over the last year because I've wanted to bring us clarity in the midst of chaos. But today we're going to focus on the piece of sovereignty, God's sovereignty that allows us to have clarity when things are cloudy, when they're chaotic. And so let's begin this morning by simply reading the first portion of the chapter, verses 1 through 11. So look with me there at Daniel 2, verses 1 through 11. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and this is the portion in the original manuscripts where it transitions from Hebrew into Aramaic, and will last that way until a later chapter. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Hmm. 
This section introduces us to the setting and the background of this court tale. And what we see first in this is that Nebuchadnezzar's dream illustrates that earthly wisdom is limited. Earthly wisdom is limited. Nebuchadnezzar is early in his reign as king, and being only the second generation of royalty in this newly minted kingdom is a weighty responsibility. He wants to know how long will his reign last? Will Babylon outlast him? These are questions that would sit heavily on any king's mind. And history shows that he has a right to be a little bit worried. All of his, uh, the guys who are his successors, three of them that come after him, they're all assassinated. And so it would be wise to think about the future. And so he awakens from a dream and dread and anxiety. And it could be that this was even more anxiety-ridden because verse 1 gives us the impression, because it uses the word dreams, plural, that he had the same dream over a series of nights, and it was so stressful for him that he started to have insomnia to the point where he could no longer sleep. I don't know if that's ever happened to you where you've had a recurring dream and you don't even want to go to sleep because you're worried you're going to have it again. So he summons his wise men and gives, uh, to give him understanding of what the dream means. He calls them all in, the full number of them, the sorcerers, the enchanters, the magicians, and the Chaldeans, which is a designation that is meant to indicate other wise men. And he says to them, tell me what my dream means and what the gods are trying to tell me by giving it to me. After all, the wise men should be the ones that can give him the true meaning, right? They're the ones that are closest to the gods, supposedly, in that religion. But that's wrong because they are unable in their limited understanding to give him the meaning. Now, last week, we looked at the comparison of earthly wisdom, the earthly wisdom of Babylon and the divine wisdom of God. And to help us understand the difference between the two, let's define wisdom as this, the source of judgment from which we make decisions. The source of judgment from which we make decisions. Last week, we saw that the Babylonians looked to their own understanding, their own traditions and rituals, and their systematized process of gaining wisdom to produce wise men that could tell the king which direction he should go. And so he relied upon this earthly wisdom, this earthly source of judgment to tell him what he should do. But Daniel relied not on divination or astrology or using the livers of animals to determine truth. He relied upon the truth and wisdom of the God of Israel. In the New Testament, James gives us this understanding about the wisdom from God versus the wisdom from the earthly realm. He says this in James 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." You see, the wisdom that is from above flows out of the character and the plan of God. It's based in righteousness and justice that will lead to peace and mercy and shalom. And the wisdom that is from us, it will only lead to destruction and division and anger because it's based out of the relative selfish ambition that we each have and what seems good to our individual selves in the moment. And this means we are limited in our understanding because we are finite mortal beings who can barely, if at all, see outside ourselves. 
Have you ever had that moment where you're looking at somebody who you've known for a long time, a spouse or a child or a roommate or a good friend that you've known for a long time, and you have that humbling that happens where you look at them, and even with all of your knowledge of experience of them, you realize, I really don't know them at all. And it's almost an impossibility, and it, it leaves you a little bit sad, but we are, it tells us we are so limited in our scope and ability to see and know. We are mortal. We are limited. But that truth is lost on us because we live in a time when the answer to any question is at our fingertips on our phones. It gives us a sense of prideful conceit that while we individually may not know everything, we corporately as a society do. But part of being human and made in the image of God is that we are not God and therefore cannot know all. It's like we are marathon runners running on a race route. We may know where the track ends. We may even have a map, but we are captive to the journey to get there. We have no vantage point other than the moment in which we find ourselves. This shows the futility in trying to find answers using our finite knowledge. But that is what Nebuchadnezzar does. It was believed in ancient cultures that most, if not all dreams, were the product of the gods. And so in his own belief system, he should be able to reach out to the wise men and say, wise men, tell me what these dreams mean. But they can't, even though they were trained to do it. The wise men are caught in their realization that they are limited. They begin stalling. And Nebuchadnezzar calls them out and motivates them. He, he uses this wonderful uh, carrot and stick idea, right? Uh, do it well and I'll give you lots of rewards. Do it terribly and I'll rip off your limbs, right? Any of you ever seen that management style employed? Well, then faced with the reality of the situation, what do they do? They have to be honest and the wise men actually say something wise. They admit their limitation. May have been the only wise thing they ever said. Look again at verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered, the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They own up to the fact that for the level of wisdom, the wisdom that speaks to the future and the path of history, only a divine being could give that. No human can actually provide that. We are limited. And because of that, we should be greatly humbled. Now, you might say, well, Hans, read ahead. Daniel is the one that gives it to him. He's a man. But Daniel even agrees with them because, as we'll see, he says, it's not my wisdom. The Lord delivered this to me. I am limited. This idea of limitation should keep us greatly humbled. Friends, if those closest to you were asked to describe your opinion of your own wisdom and knowledge, what would they say? Would they say that you are humble teachable, open to reason, and that you know that any wisdom you do have comes from God, as we'll hear Daniel claim? Or would they say something else? We are limited as mortal beings in our understanding and wisdom. Do we have the same understanding as these wise men that to gain true wisdom, it must come from God and from his word? This was what Daniel relied on last week, and he'll show it again this week as he relies on the Lord and nothing else. So let's go ahead and read the next section, Daniel 2, 12 through 24. Daniel 2, 12 through 24. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. <laughs> Literally ripped limb from limb. Get out the rack. 
So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Here we see Daniel's response, and that it proclaims the wisdom of God is unlimited because he is sovereign. Daniel's response proclaims the wisdom of God is unlimited because he is sovereign. The king is none too pleased at the response of his supposed wise men, so much so that he is willing to destroy all the work and training that had been put into these wise men and start over. The order is issued to kill all the wise men, including Daniel and his three companions, who were either finishing their training or had just emerged as graduates. Imagine starting a business and then one day going, I'm unhappy with it, let's just tear the whole thing down. He was that angry. And Daniel responds in an amazingly measured way. And next week, because this is such a large passage I'm covering, I'll break down his response in a very applicable way for us as an example of how we as Christ followers can respond in the midst of chaos. But for this week, I want to focus not so much on the practical nature of his response, but on his motivation, on his underlying theology. We see Daniel relying and trusting upon the wisdom of God in a huge way. He recognized that he was out of his league and to save both himself, his friends, and to seek the welfare of the Babylonian wise men. As he'd been commanded through the prophet Jeremiah, he needed to rely on the wisdom that was beyond himself. So he heads to his house where he's living with the three other companions and calls them to join him in seeking mercy from the God of heaven. And this was another name for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Daniel relies upon the wisdom of God when he is confronted with chaos. He realizes humbly his own limitations while at the same time realizing the awesome power and wisdom of God. And as we'll see next week, the first thing he does is he gets on his knees to seek the Lord's wisdom. Oh, that you and I were that quick to rely upon the Lord before any other form of wisdom. Now, I have to put a caveat in here. This passage is not, at the same time, being anti-intellectual or anti-academic. I think oftentimes many Christians hyper-spiritualize this and they say, well, just lock me on an island with my Bible and the Holy Spirit and I'll be able to figure out what the Bible means. That's a very bad idea. The reality is, is God has given apostolic authority. He's given pastors and shepherds and teachers to the church to help us walk through what the Bible means. 
And so this isn't a passage that can be used to say, well, just don't rely on any education, don't rely on anything else, just lock yourself in a room with the Bible and you'll be fine. I just want to give that because I think oftentimes we can start to lead to that place. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is, where do you go for the wisdom? Where do you go for the wisdom? He receives wisdom from God after seeking him through prayer, through a vision, and and look at his response and thanksgiving and praise to God in verses 20 through 23. Primarily, look at verse 21. Daniel gives thanks to God because he sees fit. God sees fit to condescend to Daniel and reveal to him the understanding of what God sees in the future of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And within that statement of blessing and praise, look at what he says in verse 21. He changes, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. In this very simple statement, really in the whole of the context, Daniel gives us insight into the sovereignty of God. Look Look again with me, if you will. Go to Isaiah with our uh, original passage that we read earlier. Go to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. And look with me at what we read earlier that Michael read to us. And I want to look at that passage and some of the context of it. And I want to use this as an example of what the Bible speaks of when it talks about God's sovereignty. Daniel is relying upon a very well-worn path of truth throughout Scripture. So go ahead and look at verses 6 through 8 that we read earlier. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Hold on to that one for when we get to Revelation and Jesus claims the same thing, right? There's the divinity of Christ. Who is like me, he says. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Are you, uh, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. The context of this passage is the Lord's sovereignty. He is the foundation of all that occurs in the historic arc of this world. There is nothing that is outside of his view. Verses 1 through 5 then give us a little bit of context to this. They speak of God's sovereignty of election of people, simply Israel, that he has called to be his own. Look at that, verses 1 through 5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one, I will say, I, this one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Friends, the reality is, is that we are so lost in sin, in the original sin that we inherit from our first father, Adam, that we deserve nothing but division from God and judgment of our sins. And God, in his gracious nature, reached down to the, into the abyss that was humanity and called out certain people. He called out Abraham and his offspring to be his people. And this is in parallel with the fact that he allows our free will to work in an amazing way. So when you read the stories of Israel, you see that they are elected, they are called, they are chosen, and yet he allows free will of certain individuals within that group to work. 
And some of you might be going, man, Hans, you sound really Calvinist today. And I would say, yeah, because this text is very Calvinistic. But other times you're going to hear me because I try to be biblically theological before I am systematically theological. You're going to hear me sound like an Arminian. And some of you may have no idea what Calvinistic or Arminian means. The reality is, is that this scripture says clearly that God is the one that ordains the events of history. He is the one that lifts kings up and puts them down. He is the one that calls the church and calls Israel and allows the rest to move in their own free will. And then let's read the, the context right after this passage, verses 9 through 11. He says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for, for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. He's pointing out here in the midst of this idea of God's sovereignty that he alone is the God that knows the future of the nations. He alone is the rock upon which the cosmos exists. Anyone else that goes to try and find wisdom in anything else, including idols, is limited and therefore foolish. And because he is sovereign, he laughs at our attempts to use worldly means to find his truth. Look at verses 24 and 25. Though Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turn, turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. What an applicable passage to Daniel 2 and the events happening in it. It is from God's wisdom, from his very character, that the historic arc of the cosmos has been developed. And only God knows what it will be in the future. He alone is able to pilot it in a way that is beyond our comprehension and knowledge. He is sovereign while also giving room in parallel for us to exist in the freedom of our own will. And if you're having trouble figuring out how those two things can go together, it's because you're human. In spite of our rebellious hearts, God is directing the cosmos to an eventual end of redemption and shalom. And he does so through lifting up and putting down nations and leaders. Paul gives us the same impression in Romans 13. He says this in Romans 13.1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now here's the catch, and listen closely. Only God knows if those nations and leaders that he puts in place are a blessing or a judgment. Hans, was Donald Trump put in place by God? Absolutely. As a blessing or a cursing? I don't know. Hans, was Joe Biden put in place by God? Absolutely. As a blessing or a cursing? I don't know. Only the Lord knows. And this statement of God's sovereignty over the timeline of history continues on into Isaiah 45. Take a look there. Here he's talking about Cyrus, the great king of Persia. And this was prophesied before Cyrus ever even came to be, that Cyrus would be lifted up and exalted so that God might accomplish his purposes of bringing Israel back from Babylonian exile into their land. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. It says this, 
For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Do you think he's trying to get something across here in these two chapters? I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God alone is able to give his people the wisdom that is outside our limited time and space because he alone is sovereign over the cosmos. Now, I know immediately from a pastoral perspective, you're, you're taking this down and going, how does this work out in the practical application of my daily life and these events that have happened that are negative? Guys, I'm not even going to go into that today because that, that deserves an entire separate discussion. The truth of this passage, though, the truth of Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 and Daniel 2 is that even beyond our ability to understand it, God is sovereign and he alone sets up the historic arc of the world. And it's in this sovereign authority that he gives Daniel the content and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So let's go back to Daniel and let's take a look there at Daniel 2 and read verses 25 through 45. This is the big, large chunk of the, the section. Starting in verse 25, back in Daniel 2. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. So he's agreeing with the wise men. But, he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. We'll return to that next week a bit. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Now immediately your brain should be going back to this idea of the rock. Is there more than one rock? No, there is no other rock, okay? We'll keep going here. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. That's the one thing he makes clear here. He makes this very certain, and then from there it becomes ambiguous. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, 
And like iron that crushes, it shall, break, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw, iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Well, everybody clear on that? Let's pray. <laughs> no? A little confusing, huh? Well, the dream is actually pretty simple, and we'll go through it. You can write down next, the dream interpreted. Here's the truth. Earthly kingdoms will strive and fail, but God is sovereign. Earthly kingdoms will strive and fail, but God is sovereign. Now, this portion in Daniel 2 gets the majority of the focus, and rightly so. It's, it's the big portion of it. But remember the context of what we've just seen. I would submit to you that it does damage to the intent of the original author and the ultimate author, the Lord himself, when we disengage this text from the rest of the context leading up to it and use it as a codex of some sort so that in solving it, we can know dates of future prophetic events. It's left ambiguous for a reason but I'm getting ahead of myself here. The king has a dream about this large statue, and this would have been very obvious uh, as a symbol to people of that day. No one would have thought this was weird, as kingdoms and kings often commemorated their reign with large statues. Here's, for example, the Colossus of Rhodes or the giant statue of Ramses II in Egypt. And if you think those are weird, go to Washington, D.C. and see how many giant statues of our forefathers we have there. This is a very normal thing to commemorate a reign. But this statue is different. It's made of materials that depreciate in value as you move down the statue. It might look something like this artist's rendering here. But then there's something very disconcerting, this idea, the occurrence of a, a rock, a stone, crushing the feet of this statue, at which point the whole statue collapses into dust and disappears, as if there was nothing ever there. Daniel moves through the interpretation and states that what is known for sure, the one thing we can be assured of, is that the head symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar and his reign over his kingdom. And he moves on from there that there would be three more kingdoms that will come after that, that will be inferior in power, but still shall rule over the earth. The fourth would be extremely powerful and overcome all previous empires. But that fourth empire would lack what we can refer to as structural integrity because it would be divided. Unlike Babylon, this fourth kingdom wouldn't be able to integrate and assimilate all the people within its boundaries, even through intermarriage. And interestingly, at the time that the divided kingdom happens, God would set up a kingdom that would fill the whole earth and never come to an end. So what does this all mean? Well, from a high level, I'm going to break down all of the possibilities. So get ready here. If you're tuned out, tune back in. There are three major orthodox options that are suggested by theologians and commentators. The first one is the option of what I call the Babylonian view. 
And this is a view that just as the head was classified as Nebuchadnezzar, the subsequent kingdoms were actually within the kingdom of Babylon. We were just, uh, um, but their actual, sorry, we've got technical difficulties here. There we go. Uh, this, this view, the Babylonian view, is that the head was Nebuchadnezzar, but the subsequent kingdoms that come under it are actually just Babylon reigned by other kings, inferior Babylonian kings to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, from a logistical and a historical standpoint, this could definitely work. But the problem is, is there are just too many questions around how God filled the earth with his kingdom at the end of the Babylonian reign. So this is a minority view in the idea of orthodoxy. Not too many hold this, this view anymore. The second idea is what's called the Maccabean thesis view. I know this is getting very nerdy, but just stick with me here. The Maccabean thesis view is the view that suggests that the gold kingdom is Babylon, that the silver kingdom underneath it is the Persians, that the bronze kingdom underneath it is the Medes, and the iron kingdom that runs into the feet is Greece under the awesome military might of Alexander the Great. And the divided kingdom is what occurred after Alexander died. If you know your history, and we're going to cover this as we go through Daniel, he had to split up his kingdom among multiple different other kings. And so that could describe the, the, the kingdom that's divided. But this too has a hard time reconciling this final idea that at the end of the Greek empire, God filled the earth so much so that other kingdoms fell apart. And so this too is a minority view. Well, the third view is what's called the conservative or the contemporary view. It's very popular in evangelicalism today. And it's what I would subscribe to you is what I think it might mean. But as I'll say in a minute, it doesn't really matter. This view is the idea that the, the kingdoms go from Babylon at first in the gold to a combined kingdom of the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus and the silver. And then the bronze is Alexander the Great leading the Greeks. And then the Iron Kingdom is the Roman Empire. Its military might was awesome and it was a kingdom that covered the earth just as the Greeks did and so it fits. But it became too widespread and was eventually broken into a Western Roman Empire and an Eastern Roman Empire and even more splitting beyond that. And this works well with a historic view. And as we will see in chapter 7, it will parallel a vision received by Daniel of these same four kingdoms symbolized as beasts. And so it's this view that the majority of conservative theologians and commentators uh, subscribe to, myself included. And so that's what I'd submit to you might be pictured. But here's the interesting thing. When we get to the symbolism of the feet of the statue and the cosmic event of the destruction of the statue, it starts to get a little bit less clear. And there's additional debate. There's two options. One is what's called a literal view. And the first theory of this literal view was largely pop popularized over the last 200 years in the end times theology or eschatology made popular in the 1980s and 90s, and you may know it pretty well as the Left Behind series, right? Anybody know the Left Behind series in here? The idea of the rapture, all that kind of stuff. Some of you may not. And it's this feat, uh, idea of the feet picture a, a literal kingdom that is to come in the last days of the earth that will come out of the remnants of the Roman Empire. Now, here's what's hard and where it's difficult to get this out of the text. In order for this view to be real, to go from the ankles down into the feet, there has to be a break in the chronology, and you literally have to stop time and avoid all previous empires that go from the Roman Empire until Jesus comes back. But then with the feet, you suddenly break back in and you have this new kingdom that is symbolized by the number 10 because there's 10 toes. It could just be that it's a normal human statue and it had 10 toes. We'll talk about this more in chapter 7. 
It was out of this idea that this eschatology ran rampant. And the reason is, is because in 1957, there was this thing called the uh, Treaty of Rome in which six European member states signed this idea to build what we now know as the European Union. And this was the basis for a lot of, of theological thought, eschatological thought, because as its membership approached 10 member states in the late 1970s, prophecy buffs went nuts and or held their breath because they thought this was it, Jesus is going to return. This plus the newly created state of Israel and multiple wars that had occurred uh, throughout its, its time were part and parcel to why so many people thought Jesus was going to physically return in the 1980s. As I've said before, there was a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. It did not sell an iota in 1989. But I'd submit to you that this is what happens when we take current events and shove them onto biblical texts trying to figure out if we are in the last days. It's eisegesis rather than exegesis. And if you don't know what that is, you can go back and listen to the other teachings in Daniel. This is why we must be so careful to say that we know purposefully ambiguous apocalyptic texts mean something. We have to be careful to say that even though it's ambiguous, that we know what the definite interpretation of it is. Daniel saw fit not to give it. And so therefore, we should as well. Well, the second major idea then within that conservative view is the idea that the iron portion of the statue was indeed Rome. And as the Roman Empire was fractured over many years, it grew more and more structurally unstable. And this was the result of many different variables, one of which was the increasing spread of Christianity across the empire and known world. You see, during the Roman Empire, a man named Jesus showed up in Israel And through his ministry, crucifixion, and subsequent resurrection, started a movement that has since spread through the world because of its call to allegiance to Christ above everything else. And even nation states, uh, kings and nations didn't really approve of Christ and his Christians. And this is considered the spiritual view because it works from the perspective that at the cross, Jesus defeated the kingdom of darkness from which the nations of humanity gained their authority. And at his resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of his spirit, he established the church as the forerunner to the physical kingdom of Christ that will one day come. And the church has filled the earth with the power of Christ and is simply waiting for its fullness at his return. The symbolism of Christ as the rock is not unlike what Christ has said of himself. Multiple times in the gospel and in the the New Testament, you see Jesus referred to as the rock. Here's one example in the parable of the wicked tenants. He ends the parable by saying this. He looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. In other words, if you freely give yourself to him. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The idea will gain even further traction as we look at other chapters in Daniel, this idea that's laid out in the spiritual view. But I want to ask the question this morning, is the chronology really the main point of this chapter? Is figuring out the order of the kingdoms and aligning with with Scripture in order to figure out if we're in the last days, was this really the main point? Now, it might be, and we have to be open to reason on that. But it could be an even simpler and more poignant message than that that simply has to do with God's sovereignty. Would you turn with me to the book of Jeremiah and look at Jeremiah 23 with me? Go back to the left a little bit to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're just going to skim through a few portions. 
Jeremiah 23. Now the whole chapter is dealing with the wicked leaders of Israel, wicked shepherds and wicked prophets. And he starts out and he says in verse 5 of Jeremiah 23, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This section says that in spite of the wicked shepherds and leaders of Israel, God would provide a Messiah that would be the righteous branch of the lineage of David. And then he moves on to the wicked prophets. Look with me at Jeremiah 23, 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. He says there, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. These are wise men and prophets of Israel that do not actually speak the truth of God. And this is even a problem today in the church. There are men that do not preach the word of God. They preach prosperity sermons that tell everyone that they're going to be okay. They do not turn the hearts of the men back to God. Because that's what true prophets will do. They will turn people back to the Lord. Look with me at Jeremiah 23, verses 21 and 22. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Friends, not all wisdom that's presented as wisdom is actually wisdom. Not all wisdom that's presented as wisdom is actually wisdom. We have to be wise. We have to go back to the word, back to the Lord to figure out if it truly is. Keep going there in verse 23. God says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Remember in Daniel 2, it talked about the kingdom of God filling heaven and earth. He says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forget my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. Friends, this is why I'm going to constantly push you to step out of the hyper-spirituality about feelings and dreams and operate in God's word and within the context of the, the body of Christ. Because dreams and visions and things, unless they have backing that's substantial in the word of God and within the wisdom of his people, they may not be from the Lord. We have to be careful. Verse 29, is, it not my, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Does that sound familiar? The same wording is used. Therefore, he says, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. God speaks truth that false prophets will just rely upon a wisdom that they trade back and forth in the sound booth of their own thoughts, listening to only the people they agree with. 
but it will be limited in its ability to change the heart of the people or affect national events. But the true word of God will destroy earthly wisdom. It will crush like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. This is very similar language to Daniel. The language we have in Daniel 2 is reminiscent of here of, of Jeremiah 23. And the reality is, is that any of those three options that I laid out earlier, any of those three options have some truth and validity in them, but none of them so perfectly fits the image and metaphor that it should be relied upon as an absolute surety. And so while I may lean towards the conservative view with the spiritual view within it, and I think that might be what it's saying, I'm not going to preach that as the absolute word of God because I don't know that that's the truth. Any of these options have validity, but none of them is an absolute surety as to what was meant. So I wonder if that is not actually the intended end, to keep it ambiguous so that we don't look at the chronology so much as the simple yet powerful statement that God's sovereignty and intended cosmic plan will bring an end to all earthly kingdoms. His plan will be assured and all other nations, including even our own, will eventually turn to dust and only his rule will remain. Now, friends, I say that in complete humility because I love our country. I serve our country. I work for the welfare of our country, but even our country falls within that. And so, friends, we are indeed to seek the welfare of the land in which we live. We do that as citizens, as soldiers, as students, as workers and neighbors. But I want to ask you the question, where do we find our hope? Where do we find our hope? Is it in the survival of this country? Is it in democracy? Is it in self-governance? Because if we do, if that's where we hold our hope, then Daniel and his friends were fools. And they should have had no hope. But the reality is they did have hope because even when these things which we treasure were taken from them, they had hope in the truth that their true home and the abode of God could never be destroyed. Now, really quickly, I want to say this. I said this last service as well. Last week, I, I said very clearly, man, stop talking about politics. And I want to clarify what I meant there because I had a great conversation this week where somebody asked me, did I mean never ever involve yourself in politics and, and never talk about it? Here's what I meant. Reason together within the spirit of Christ out of love. Work for the welfare of this country. In politics, that's often how we get stuff done. That's often how we implement sources of justice and righteousness. But never, ever, ever let that be your priority. Because any work that's done, even political work, that isn't based in the kingdom of God, it will eventually turn to dust. And so don't let politics rise above the gospel in your life. Serve, seek the welfare of this country, absolutely. And reason with one another so that we can all be led closer and closer to the heart of God in, in issues of justice and theology. But don't let it be your priority. Hopefully that clarifies some things for you. But the reality here is, is that we should not be putting our hope in any of these things, even within our own country. Because only God will remain. And this is the message of Psalm 2, among other places in Scripture. This is what Psalm 2 says. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, pause here for a second with me. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine recently, and we were talking about how interesting it is that for both of us, and this is kind of confession time for me, we'll talk about other Christians in the world, and, and we'll, we'll think of them as Christians first and their nationality second. Oh, our brothers in Burkina Faso. Well, they're Christians first and Burkina Bay second. Oh, our brothers over in France. They're, they're, you know, they're Christians first and Frenchmen second, right? Oh, our brothers wherever, right? They're Christians first. But interestingly, how often do we think that way about ourselves? And how often do we prioritize our national identity below our Christian identity? Oftentimes I see us as Christians in America saying, well, I'm an American. Oh yeah, and I'm Christian too, but recognize that even our country falls into it when the Bible talks about the nations. Why do the nations, including the United States of America, rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Does that sound familiar? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If we love our leaders, if we love our country, we will pray this over our leaders, that they will serve the Lord and turn to him quickly, no matter who they are. Jesus quotes this on a number of occasions as well, speaking of himself. And so, as we look at this prophecy, we, we can realize, back in Daniel 2, that it is not intended as a prophecy to tell us timing. And if it's not that, then what is it? Well, we'll finish with this this morning. I think that this is the entirety of the meaning of the prophecy in Daniel 2. History is heading to a known end, where every knee will bow to the sovereignty of God. History is heading to a known end where every knee will bow to the sovereignty of God. Even if we stay with this higher level view of Daniel 2 that doesn't go down into the minutia of those views I showed you earlier, it still points to Jesus Christ. Because it is through the salvation of Christ that God has established his sovereignty over the cosmos. It is through Christ's return that this work will be completed. And much time and energy has been placed into arguing for a given chronology and a series of events in history that match this statue. And guys, that is not necessarily bad, but let's focus on the truth of what is absolutely being presented. History is heading to a known end where every knee will bow to the sovereignty of God. Now, our proof of God's sovereignty is not that a vision of Babylon and a Babylonian king can be perfectly aligned with historic events. I've seen Christians over the years who just crumble because they can't quite figure out how to fit the two together. Our proof is not in that. Our proof is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the proof of God's sovereignty. Only Christ could be the royal son of Psalm 2. Only Jesus could be the righteous branch of Jeremiah. Only Jesus could be the rock that destroys the kingdoms of this world and fills the whole earth. 
Only Jesus is the incarnation of the one true God of whom the angels in Isaiah 6 said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it's because of Jesus' sinless sacrifice and dying in our place and bringing forgiveness of sin that we are brought into his kingdom so that we might exalt and praise him. And one day at his physical return and the judgment of all men, it will be clear that he is reigning as king alone. And it is at this point that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. This is so true that Paul uses this in his letter to the Philippians. This is Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For us, a strange people in a strange land and culture, exiles in Babylon, trying to serve Christ with our lives, we can sometimes let our myopic mortal vantage point crowd out this truth. And we can live for other purposes other than this truth. A wonderful theologian named Anthony Hokema in his book, The Bible in the Future, says this. Many Christians today fail to live in the full light of the Christian interpretation of history. Quoting from Burkhoff, a contemporary theologian of his day, he continues, he says, the 20th century church of Christ is spiritually unable to stand against the rapid changes that take place around her because she has not learned to view history from the perspective of the reign of Christ. For that reason, she thinks of the events of her own time in entirely secular terms. She is overcome with fear in a worldly manner, and in a worldly manner she tries to free herself from fear. In this process, God functions as no more than a beneficent stopgap. Man, if that was true for the 20th century, I would say it's true for the church in the 21st century. When we grasp the truth that history is heading to a known end where every knee will bow to the sovereignty of God, we will suddenly operate in a different mindset. On the one hand, we will find ourselves fearing the changing of governments, leaders, and platforms far less. We will be less affected by it, not apathetic, but less affected in a negative way. Dread will not overtake us when we see what seems like unsolvable civil problems and people who don't agree. And on the other hand, it will cause us to take action in seeking the welfare of our city and state and nation and evangelizing those around us because we can trust that everything we pour out for the kingdom of God will one day come to fruition. Now, if you're unsure as to whether or not you've given your life over to Jesus, because that's where this all starts, acknowledging his sovereignty, then I want to ask you to do so today because to acknowledge his sovereignty is first and foremost to give yourself over to him. Because whenever he returns, you and I will have either been broken by his grace to the point where we give our life over to him or we will be crushed by his righteous judgment upon our sin and rebellion towards him. And so if you want to give your life over to Jesus today, I would ask that you come chat with me or chat with one of the other elders right after service. We'd love to talk with you about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Online, you can contact me at Hans at missionsalem.com, and I'd love to converse with you. But for those of us who are his own, this quote from Hokema should 
cause us to question. When we are confronted with impossible scenarios, how can we become a people like Daniel that turn to God first and foremost? And what does it look like to live daily in the light of the fact that history is heading to a known end where every knee will bow to the sovereignty of God? And I thought about it, and I could list out a bunch of application points to that and just say, well, this is how you should do it, but I want you to wrestle through that in your own time with the Lord and with one another. What does it look like, rather than being that group that Hokuma talks about, where we think of current events and, and the span of history in purely secular terms, what does it look like for us to think about it in terms of the Christian view of history? Now, some of you might say, well, Hans, that's why we do prophecy, is to make sure that we see how everything fits and what all the history is and what the future is going to be. But I would suggest to you it has less to do with the academic pursuit of timelines and chronology and more to do with living out a life in godly submission to Christ. If you believe that history is heading to a known end where every knee will bow to the sovereignty of God, how should it cause you to live? How should this affect our urgency, for example, to tell people about the wisdom of God as Daniel did? Because, as we'll see next week as well, when we look at the response of even a pagan king who had set himself up as a god, when he sees the wisdom of God put forth, here's his response. This is Daniel 2.47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Let's pray that the Lord would bring history to its fulfillment soon and that in the meantime, we would be used as Daniel was to present the wisdom of God to the people around us and bring him glory. Amen? Amen. Next week, we'll jump more into the application of this point.